So as we uh, jump into the word this morning here at Meadowbrook Church, we're helping people take their next steps with Jesus. We're wanting to help you wherever you're at to continue on in your spiritual journey, to follow after Jesus more closely, to get to know him better. We focus on that primarily in these three ways, upward, inward, and outward. So we want to take our next steps upward in our walk with him, our connection with him, our knowledge of him, our communion with him. We want to take our next steps inward as the Holy Spirit does his work in us as we become more holy, as we are healed and transformed and set free, and then outward as we live out this faith, as we engage with other people in our church, as we engage with the world around us, what does it mean to take our next steps there? So we've been in a series that we've called Jesus and the Sinners. We're going to wrap this up next week as we are getting into Easter. Um, Just as a heads up, Easter candy now costs about $1,000 for everything. Uh, So Easter is coming up. We will have our normal Easter service and Good Friday service as we've mentioned already. So we'll wrap up this series next week, heading into Easter. Uh, But we've been talking about and looking at different stories in the Gospels where Jesus engages with people in their sin. And we've been looking at uh, what does it teach us about who Jesus is? What does it teach us about our sin? What does it teach us about when we see other people in their sin? And how do we engage in other people's sin the way that Jesus did? And how do we engage in people and help them in their spiritual journey, even as we're walking through our And so we've been talking about these key ideas. They've kind of guided us through the series from week one, that Jesus calls us to follow him and his ways. 1 John 2, 6, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. If we're going to call ourselves Christ followers, we actually need to follow in the way of Christ. So he calls us to honor his teaching and to follow his example. And so because of that, his teaching and his example become very important to us as Christ followers. Jesus' engagement with sinners sometimes makes some religious people uncomfortable. They thought Jesus was loving them too much. He was being too friendly. He was being too soft on sin. He wasn't doing any of those things. And he wasn't overly concerned that he was accused of that. Um, He met people where they were at, which we'll come back to. That being said, Jesus calls sin what it is and calls us away from it. We believe that sin, the things that the Bible says don't cross this line on, are put there by a God who loves us. That that is the motivation of God in putting some boundaries on our behavior. And so when God says don't do something, it's not to be controlling and it's not to be arbitrary and it's not to be cruel. It's because he loves us and he wants to keep us safe and he wants to protect and provide for us. And so when God says don't do certain things, we believe that's ultimately for our good. And so Jesus calls sin what it is and calls us to find a better way. He calls us to find the way of Christ, to find the holy way, to find the pure way. We've seen that Jesus is both holy and merciful. He is perfectly both and he doesn't do what we often do, which is compromise one for the other, right? We can be so merciful merciful that we forget holiness. We can be so holy that we forget mercy. Jesus is both together at the same time. And then Jesus meets people exactly where they are. He often doesn't want them to stay where they are, but he meets them exactly where they are. And then he calls them to follow after him. We've also been looking at this verse, John 1 14. We have seen his Jesus glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And again, Jesus was both fully gracious and fully truthful. And he compromise neither one for the sake of the other, which we often do. We can be so gracious that we lay aside truth. We can be so truthful that we lay aside grace. Jesus does both of them together. And again, we are always wanting to follow in his example. So I have shared uh, stories from my house before. These are our two dogs. Uh, Sasha's the one on the right. That is the older one. Josie's the one on the left. And uh, my family loves these dogs more than anything. I'm in it more for the sermon illustrations. That's what's worked out for me along the way. And so the other day, I was home by myself, 
It was my day off, and I was eating a snack downstairs. I was watching TV, and uh, I had to leave the room for a moment. And when a snack is open, for those of you who have dogs, the dogs are there, right? Like, they're right there. And so Sasha is right there beside me, just staring up with her, like, you know, beggar eyes and just with a sad look on her face. And so we have a rule in our house that we don't give them people food, which we break all day, every day. Uh, We don't follow it that well. And so I needed to leave the room for a moment. I had my snack, and so I didn't want to carry it with me as I left. If I put it down on the couch, she would obviously just eat all of it. And so I put it on our coffee table, and we have kind of a, a big, wide coffee table. And the dogs can't reach the middle of it, but just to be sure, I piled some things up on top of it and put it on top of that. And then to be sure, I put a pillow on top of that. So there's no way the dog is getting this. And then I left the room to go do what I was going to do. And within two minutes of being gone, I hear a thump. And I come back and she has gotten the snack, spilled over on the ground and is eating it, just delighted with herself. And I went, Sasha, hey, like Josie on the left, Josie's a brat, but Sasha is a good dog. Like Sasha does what she's told. And so it was kind of shocking to see that it had happened. And the minute I said, Sasha, she kind of cowered and looked all sad. And you can't be mad at me because I'm so cute. And um, and yet there was part of me that was like, ah, oh, you shouldn't have done that. I said, don't do that. And there you, you did it. And then there was part of me that was like, how did you do that? Like, how did you pull that off? I went to such effort to make sure that that couldn't happen. I didn't even think you could meet, reach the middle of the coffee table, let alone several layers on top of that and all covered up and everything. So it was a mixture of like, ah, oh, you stupid dog. And also that was impressive. Like, I don't know how you pulled that off, but you earned it, right? <laughs> yeah, however it happened, you really made that happen. And, you know, as, as that moment passes, uh, just in thinking about that of going like, you know, we really do get impressed when someone goes the extra mile to do something, right? When like we value stories where someone really overcomes something or there's an insurmountable obstacle, but they made it anyway. Like there's something impressive about that. And of course it depends what we're, what we're going after, I guess. And is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? But we really do admire stories of sacrifice and stories of persevering and stories of overcoming. And, and there's something in us that says, you know, when something's hard and someone does that, we go, hey, I mean, that guy deserves the gold medal at the Olympics, right? They deserve to hoist the Stanley Cup. That person deserves to to get that promotion. That person deserves to to have that breakthrough uh, because they've sought after it. Like they've pursued it. They've persevered through it. Perseverance is always an admirable quality. And so we're going to see that confronted in our text today, the story that we're going to get to. And I'm going to try to whip through this uh, because we talked about Xavier way longer than he was comfortable with. And so now we're running out of time a little bit in our service. But let's look at our text. We're Mark chapter 10, and we're starting in verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your mother and father. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. 
The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. So as it relates to our series, this story is a little different because this guy's not really an obvious sinner in the same way as some of the other stories that we've looked at. Like having money in itself is not a sin. And yet there's obviously something in his money that is a problem for him in his walk with Jesus. There is something that is getting in the way. And so the Bible doesn't ever call money itself sinful. That being said, there are warnings throughout scripture about money and just where is it sitting in your heart? I think it's very telling that Jesus called money the other master. Right? You can't serve both God and money. It's the other master. And by the way, you don't have to have money for money to be the master of your life. You can be just as driven by it and have it take just as much an inappropriate place in your life as if you are wealthy. So it's not just for the wealthy when the Bible's talking about money. And so as uh, we're looking at this story, again, this isn't uh, immorality like we've seen in some of our other stories. This isn't kind of an obvious sin. This man isn't maybe a sinner in quite the same way. And yet at the same time, there is something going on in him that is getting in the way of his way to heaven that Jesus is obviously speaking to. And so we're going to move through this pretty quickly today, um, and, and we're not going to go as deep as we normally would just in the interest of time, but uh, we're going to touch on some verses here. So verse 17, Jesus is on his way. A man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So what I like about this guy already is that he's hungry. Right? He's not uh, maybe a follower of Jesus yet, obviously, but he's hungry, he's interested, he's seeking, he's searching. There is something in him that is driven. There is something in him that is, is looking for more. And so he, he wants to know, right? He wants to be right with God. He wants to go to heaven. And he somehow intuits that Jesus is the one who has the answer. So he comes down before him, why, our good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's such a great start. It's so good. Verse 18, Jesus says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Now, Jesus is not saying that he's not good. Uh, and Jesus is also not saying that he's not God, because we believe that Jesus, the Son, is God in the flesh. But there's something interesting about Jesus' ministry, uh, especially in Mark's gospel. The theologians call it the Markan secrecy, which is that often throughout the gospels, but particularly in Mark's gospel, Jesus really seems to be wanting to fly under the radar about who he is. And there's much speculation as to why some of it is perhaps he didn't want to sort of tip his hand too soon and, and get the crowds too angry because the cross was coming, but it had to be in the right timing. So perhaps he didn't want to get too famous too soon. Uh, that is, I think, part of it. Um, he's also just trying not to draw too much attention to himself because he doesn't want to um, sort of become the, the center of attention along the way. I think also we get a clue from John's gospel, John 8:50. Jesus says, I'm not seeking glory for myself. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. That Jesus lives a life on earth completely devoted to giving attention to the Father. There is nothing in Jesus when he walked the earth that was saying, come worship me. 
come, come give me the glory. It was like, you know, all the glory goes to my father. And he lived a life of just serving other people and giving glory to the father. And Jesus says at the end of John's gospel, I know that as I've given my life for the glory of the father, now that I go to the cross, the father will now glorify me and we will glorify each other. But when Jesus was walking the earth in his ministry, he wasn't seeking glory. He wasn't seeking the attention. And so when this man comes and gives him an attribute that's normally given to the father, Jesus says, let's just go ahead for now and just give that glory to the Father. The Father is good. Uh, we will we'll keep the attention there. Let's keep our attention on that uh, at this particular point. And so our lives on this earth obviously are to be the same. We are not to seek our own glory. We're not to, to go around bragging and boasting and drawing attention to ourselves. We live to follow in the example of Jesus, and that means we are here to serve others, and we are here to give glory to the Father. We point all of the glory to him. So Jesus responds, verse 19, you know the commandments. So the question has been posed, how do I get to heaven? How do I inherit eternal life? Jesus responds, you know the commandments. You shall not murder, commit adultery, shall not steal, shall not give false testimony, shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Now, those obviously aren't all the commandments. Those aren't even all of the ten commandments, right? There, there's about seven commandments listed there, so it's not even all of them. And there's lots of commandments other than that. We, we kind of focus on the, the ten in the Old Testament law, uh, but there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 613 different laws and statutes and commandments as part of the law of the Old Testament. And so Jesus isn't meaning to give a full exhaustive list, obviously. He's just giving a few examples. And uh, what's interesting about it is that Jesus doesn't respond by saying, you get to heaven by following the commandments. That's not what he says. The question comes, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus responds, you know the commandments. He doesn't say anything more than that. He's doing what rabbis often did, which is throwing something out in order to start a conversation. So Jesus is in no way saying, you get to heaven by following the commandments. He just starts the conversation. How do I get to eternal life? You know the commandments. The commandments say this. And by asking this, the rabbi is looking to expose something about where the student is at. So the rabbi is opening up the conversation. So the man responds, verse 20, teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And now we're getting to a little more of where the heart of the man is. Because I hate to break it to him, but he has not followed all the commandments since he was a boy. Nobody has. The Bible says only Christ has perfectly fulfilled everything that God has required. We have all fallen short. We have all broken the law. We have all missed the mark. And so this guy thinks he has. And so that's, we're seeing part of where he's at now uh, and, and part of what the issue is. So he's saying, I, I have kept them all. And maybe that's absolutely sincere on his part. Maybe, you know what? I really have worked hard. I really have been dedicated. I really have been committed. And, and perhaps that is true. It's just a fact that he has not kept all of them uh, for his entire life. That's just not possible. Uh, but that's also not how we get to heaven, as we're going to see in just a moment. We don't get to heaven by doing all the right things. We don't get to heaven by obeying the commandments perfectly. Paul would say in Romans 3.20, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by obeying the law, by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. 
And so the law is there to show us, the commandments are there to show us this is what God wants of us. The law is there to show us this is what a perfect life looks like when it's lived out. But then it's also there to show us, oh, we have fallen short of that. And no matter how hard we work, we can never live this out perfectly. The law is there to help us understand that we're sinners in need of a savior, that we can't get there ourselves. God knows we can't get there ourselves. And that's why he says no one's getting to heaven. No one's being declared righteous by following this perfectly because you haven't followed it perfectly and you can't but Jesus has followed it perfectly and the blessing of the gospel is that in Jesus his perfection is offered to us where we get to heaven not because of, of where we're at with the law but because his righteousness is given to us as a gift and we're considered righteous not because of what we did or didn't do we're considered righteous because of what he has done for us that's the gift of grace that comes to us in the gospel. And so we're, no one's getting to heaven by obeying the commandments. Jesus has not said that in this passage. But the man says, hey, I've obeyed these my whole life, right? The, the suggestion, so I'm good then, right? Does that mean that I'm good? And so Jesus knows better, obviously. But I love that even as this man uh, doesn't really understand how this works, and that's not his fault. He's here to learn. But even as this man also maybe isn't being honest about his sin, and he's not maybe self-aware in the way that he needs to be. Look at this next verse. It's so easy to skip over. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And there's so much beauty in just those few words. Jesus looked at him and didn't say, oh, look how clueless this guy is, or look how arrogant he is, or he thinks he's righteous and he's not even acknowledging that he's broken some commandments. Like there's no anger, there's no rebuke in this moment, there's no correction. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And I think Jesus must just love that he's seeking, that he's searching, that he's hungry. And we can put so much pressure on ourselves of, you know, what if I don't believe it the right way? Or what if I don't have my theology quite right? Or, or what if I'm not living the right way in every single area? And in those things, we need to be seeking more and we need to be pressing in and we need to be seeking after Jesus. Of course, they're important things. But there was a monk in the Middle Ages who said once, Lord, I don't always know how to understand your word, and I don't always know the right thing to do, but I believe the fact that I want to please you pleases you. Right? The fact that I'm seeking, the fact that I'm searching, the fact that I'm hungry, I believe that honors the Lord, and, and I agree with that as well. So he looks at him and he loves him. He loves him right where he's at. He doesn't have it all figured out correctly. And, and he's not, again, maybe being fully honest with himself about his sin. But Jesus looks at him not with anger in this moment. He looks at him and he loves him. Second part of verse 21, he says, One thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And so on the surface, it kind of looks like Jesus is saying, oh, so you can just buy your way into heaven, right? There's a, just a, an action you can do, and then you'll be right. And that's not what he's saying here either, uh, because he's just said, it's not about how perfectly you obey things. Like, that's not how you get into heaven. The key part is the last part. You get into heaven by responding when Jesus says, come and follow me. That's how you get into heaven. When you put your trust in him and what he's done for us on the cross, and then we come and we follow after him, that is where salvation comes. That being said, Jesus obviously knows that for this man, the money is a problem. There is something in his wealth that is getting in the way of his following. 
And so it's not about a wealthy person can't follow after Jesus. They absolutely can. For this man, the wealth is going to be a problem for him. So Jesus says, you need to get that wealth out of the way. And once that wealth is out of the way, you will be free in your mind and heart, and then you will be able to follow me. So how do I inherit eternal life? It's not go sell everything. Like everyone go home right now and throw everything up on Marketplace. And that's not what this is about. Although if God's telling you to do that, you should do that for sure. But it's not meant to be a blanket thing. It's not meant to be something that everyone automatically does. And and again, if you're feeling compelled to, you should pray into that. and, And perhaps God is leading you that way. But that's not the most important part of that statement. The most important part of that statement is come and follow me. That's how we inherit eternal life. Come and follow me. And any one of us may have any number of things that get in the way of that following. And so for this man, it's his wealth. His wealth is getting in the way. So Jesus says, you need to get rid of everything, and then you'll be free to come and follow after me. And so we might not be wealthy, and I think most of us probably aren't, but it's whatever is getting in the way can do the same thing to us. And maybe doesn't affect our salvation if we know we're right with God already, but can certainly affect our spiritual journey. It can certainly affect our devotion. It can certainly affect how we are walking this out. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. One of the most misquoted scriptures of all time. It usually gets shared as money is the root of all evil, period. And so you got to be careful around money because it is the root of all evil. And that's not what it says. The love of money is the problem, right? Jesus called money the other master, the other God. And so love of money can be a huge problem. Money in itself doesn't need to be a problem. It can cause all sorts of problems. And so if money isn't your particular problem, then I guess the question for all of us is this is that if we were that young man coming to the Lord and we were saying, you know, maybe we know that we're right in terms of eternal life, but if it was, Lord, how do I follow after you better? How do I please you? How do I live a life that you are calling me to live? If Jesus were to put his finger on something in your life and say, get rid of this, and that will help you follow after me, what would that thing be for you? And it might be money, it might not. But what would the thing be? If Jesus were to come and say, there's a part of your life here that's actually interfering with your journey with me. It's interfering with how you're following me. I need you to get rid of that and then come follow after me more fully. If he were to have that conversation with you, what would that thing be that Jesus is drawing attention to? And I think with a bit of reflection and prayer, you can probably come up with something pretty easily. So at this, verse 22, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. And one of the things that happens in the gospel sometimes is we're just left with the cliffhanger. Like, we don't know what happens next to this guy. And it seems to be suggested that he probably didn't, didn't follow. Like, he, he probably didn't. But we don't know that either. That, that's reading beyond the text. All we know is his face fell. He's crushed at this idea. He went away sad because he had great wealth. He didn't want to give it up. And so did he wrestle through it and give, I sure hope he did. I hope we meet this guy in heaven someday. Uh, But Jesus put his finger on the, the most important thing that was getting in the way of his walk with him. And all of a sudden, all that hunger he had five minutes ago hits a wall. And he was hungry, but was he hungry enough to do this? Was he hungry enough to overcome this obstacle? Was he hungry enough to to do whatever it was going to take in order to follow after the Lord? We don't know. It seems to imply probably not. He probably wasn't able to get there. And it's easy to be hungry until your walk with Jesus costs you something. 
And when it costs you something, all of a sudden that hunger can disappear so quickly. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. There will be sacrifice involved when it comes to walking with Jesus. There will. That's part of what he models for us and going to the cross. That's going to be part of it for us as well. It will cost us something. It comes to us freely as a gift. Salvation is a free gift. Following Jesus costs us something. Living it out costs us something. And it cost him everything. So we're in good company as we follow after him in that. A number of us have been talking about the Asbury Revival. Uh, so if you hadn't been following this at all, this is a Bible college in the States and uh, just out of their normal weekly, you know, Monday morning chapel service, uh, this move of the Spirit happened that went on for weeks and weeks and weeks, 24-7 prayer, 24-7 worship. Uh, and, and as it all unfolded, people started coming from all over the place because God was moving at this Bible college, was moving at this chapel. Uh, eventually, it became so kind of disruptive to school and everything that they've kind of reined it in a little bit now. Uh, and it's not happening 24-7 anymore. They are still having meetings. Um, but as it was unfolding, I mean, I was so impressed by the leadership of the school and the student leadership where they just said, you know what, if you want to film something for 10 seconds to post it on your Instagram, that's fine, but we don't want this to be all over social media. Like, we don't want, we want people to be free to worship without phones in their face, and, and we don't want this to become uh, something that is, you know, kind of mitigated or judged or whatever through social media, because that's just a terrible way to do it. So they said basically, like, just put your phones away and enjoy the presence of God, right? You don't have to document everything. Just enjoy the presence of God. And the clips that I've seen are just so beautiful it's all you know it's it started just as young adults just passionately worshiping jesus but i love how this whole thing started which is just it was a normal chapel service and one of the the members of the the school got up and gave the message that morning um and he thought he bombed it like he he's famously now as part of the story texted his wife after the service and said whiffed it on the sermon today i'll be home soon and, you know, my wife will tell you, she hears that a lot from me, pretty regularly. Just like, ah, I just didn't quite do what I thought. Ah, all right, well, God will do what he does with it. Um, so it wasn't a fantastic sermon, apparently. And, and their worship team was kind of one person at a piano with a couple of backup singers. It was not a big, polished worship team. And the service ended, and there was no call to do anything or respond to anything. But there were a couple of dozen students who said, why don't we just stay and pray? I, I don't want to go back to class yet. Let's just stay and pray. And so they stayed, and they stayed for what was going to be a few minutes, and that turned into an hour, and then that turned into a few hours, and then that turned into hour after hour after hour after hour. And then others began to come and pray. And then others, someone jumped on the piano, and a spontaneous worship service broke out. And then, then others began to come. And, uh, and it became this time of prayer and repentance, and, uh, and people were coming to Jesus, and then other people began to come, and, and it was just such a beautiful thing. And I have a friend who doesn't teach at that Bible college, but uh, at one of those denominational uh, sister colleges, a different college in the same denomination. And I said, what do you think is going on down there? And he just said, like, oh, man, who just can't be excited about the Holy Spirit being poured out on young people? Like, man alive. People online are going, oh, I don't know about this, and I don't know about that. He's like, just shut up. God is moving amongst our young people. It's all good. Jesus is being glorified. The gospel's being shared. People are coming to Jesus. People are being renewed in their spirits and renewed in their faith. And it all started because they just said, you know what? We're going to sacrifice our agenda for the day. We're just going to pray instead. And that doesn't seem like that big a sacrifice, but that was what was called for in that moment. What if at the end of chapel service, they all just said like, oh, it's 10 o'clock, time to get to Hebrews 101, and they would have just left the room that day. Maybe nothing would have followed. 
And so that sacrifice is not a huge sacrifice, and yet it was a step that they took to follow after. And so when it comes to the moving of the Spirit, when it comes to God's presence in your life, how hungry are you for that? Like, how bad do you actually want it? Because I just really believe that God responds where there is hunger. And some of you have said to me, well, why can't that happen here? And I say, hey, we're praying for that to happen here. Like, we've been praying for like nine years for that to happen here. We've been having our prayer times every week. And we're praying for all sorts of things. But we've been praying, Holy Spirit, move. Whatever that looks like. I don't want to duplicate what's happening anywhere. But Holy Spirit, would you just move? Would you move in power however you want to move here? And we can't make a move of the Spirit happen. Jesus says, with those of the Spirit, the Spirit's like the wind. It blows where it wants to blow. So you can't manufacture that. You can't copy that. You can't make it happen. But I absolutely believe the Spirit moves where his people are hungry and who are eager and who are waiting. And these kids at this Bible college were hungry, right? And service ended, and they went, we can't go to class. We just need to seek the Lord. Right? I'm not saying this to manipulate an altar time today or anything like that, like you should. But that being said, our service ends and we all just go home, right? Like we, we leave. And we fill our lives with other things. And not all of those things are bad necessarily. But if you want to see the Spirit move, how hungry are you? What are you willing to lay aside? What are you willing to sacrifice for the sake of an encounter with the living God? What are you willing to fast? What are you willing to, to put on the altar? What are you willing to do with your time in order to press into Him? Because I've been in those times, and I hope you've had some of those times as well, but when the Holy Spirit is moving, when you feel that sense of His closeness, there is nothing else that matters in this life. There is no problem problem that is too big. There is nothing that is overwhelming. Like to have God that real and that close, there's nothing like it. It's worth being late for whatever you were going to go to. It's worth putting something on the altar of sacrifice. It's worth it. And so for this man in our story, he was asked to give up something massive and it seems like he wasn't able to do it. He was hunger, hungry, but his hunger had a limit, right? And when he was actually called to give up something, he wasn't able to, to get to that point. Jesus looked around, verse 23, and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, and it's not, again, just about the money. It's just that when we're comfortable and when we, we have enough in and of ourselves, it can be really hard to give up that comfort. It can be really hard to, to move into a place of trust. If all of your comfort has has been in your wealth, the thought of not having that security anymore can be overwhelming. And to go in a place where it's like, oh, I just need to trust God every day for my daily bread. I just need to trust God for what I need can be very difficult when you're so used to leaning on yourself. So it's not that the money in itself is necessarily the problem, but it's hard for people to sacrifice and realize how much they need the Lord when we have so much comfort. I've been on missions trips to different places and I've gone, why is their uh, worship so much more powerful? Passionate than ours like just there's there's utter poverty everywhere and their worship is so incredible or, or their their prayer time is so in-depth and, and God's presence is so real and I've talked to missionaries who live in these places and it's like well over in Canada you have almost everything you need right like you don't need that dependence on God in the same way you're not literally depending on him for your health or for your daily bread or for a few dollars so you can fix your car like you you have so much and so as much as it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, I think it's hard for a rich nation. It's, it's the same thing. We are so self-sufficient in so many different ways that it's harder to see the lack and it's harder to see where we need something, where we have to trust God, where we have to take that step, where we are putting our trust in him. There's a lack.
elaborate uh, theologies that have come out of this passage about, you know, there was a, a gate in Jerusalem called the needle and candle, camels couldn't fit into it and everything. And, and none of that, I think, has a whole lot of value. Jesus is using a picture. A camel's an unclean creature, and it's just an impossible task, right? It's an impossible task for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And a rich person on their own, uh, apparently Jesus likens it to the same. It is incredibly difficult for someone who can put their trust in something else to realize that they need to put their trust in Jesus. The disciples were amazed, verse 26, and said to each other, who then can be saved? When Jesus says it's hard for the rich to get into heaven, that's such an upside-down thought for them because their understanding and worldview was where the rich ones were the ones that God loved the most. And it's evidenced by the fact that you can see how rich they are, right? God loves them especially. They have the favor of God because they have all the money. And Jesus says that money actually can be a very big problem. And so they're blown away by this idea. If the rich can't be saved, then who can be saved? The rich are the ones who have all the favor. They're the ones who God loves the best, and that's why they have all the stuff. And Jesus is saying that's not how the kingdom works. The kingdom isn't wired that way. When Jesus comes, he quotes Isaiah, says, The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. He's come, to me to, uh, come upon me to preach good news to the poor. And as we've seen in a lot of these stories, Jesus goes to the poor, to the outsider, to the marginalized, to the lost. He doesn't go, typically go to the ones who look like they have it all together, who look like they have all the favor of the world, who have all the, the blessings and benefits on paper, that Jesus is, is interested in those who understand that they need something. And he says it's really hard for the rich to get there. It's not literally impossible, but it is difficult. Uh, and so for any of us who have money, that's the warning for us. And, and for all of us who are part of a wealthy nation where we've just got lots of stuff, uh, by any global standard, we are all pretty wealthy by any global standard. And so it's just so easy to be comfortable. Um, and, and Jesus is turning it all upside down, that just because someone has money doesn't mean necessarily that God's blessing is with them. That's not the way this works. Jesus looked at them, verse 27, says, with man it's impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And that's a good bumper sticker. You know, we see that on, and people post it on social media. All things are possible with God or nothing is impossible with God. And it's true in lots of different ways, of course. I mean, it's, it's not impossible for God to part the Red Sea. It's not impossible for God to do any miracle. In the context of it, Jesus is saying that even God can bring the rich into heaven, right? It seems impossible, but even God can do that. And so there is still hope for this rich young man who went away, and, and perhaps he did turn things around. But God can still work it out. That is still possible when God is at work. Come on up, worship team. We're going to wrap up here. So as we reflect on all of this, and as we are reflecting on our, our goal here at Meadowbrook, we're helping people take their next steps with Jesus upward and inward and outward. Um, you know, when we preach a message, I, I always say, you know, you need to spend some time with the Lord in this, and, uh, and I hope you don't just turn it off when you leave this place, but take some time in the days to come to reflect on it, to pray about it, to talk about it, uh, to take some time to let the Holy Spirit continue to speak into these things. And so just some suggestions for you as we get going. What are your next steps? So upwardly, uh, that question, how hungry are you for the things of God? How hungry are you? Uh, I think many of us are not. We're, we're quite comfortable exactly where we're at. 
Uh, I read the book of Acts and I go, there's so much more to this than we're experiencing. And, and I hear these stories of Asbury and the Welsh revival and these different things. I go, man, there's so much more. Uh, Terry Bone was in town this weekend. He was he's speaking at Lake Point this morning and doing a seminar there. And Terry and I had coffee last night and he was talking about just coming back from Bangladesh, coming back from Nepal and uh, and just enjoying God pouring out his spirit in abundance on people who, who have nothing except hunger for who God is and, and just enjoying being in his presence and seeing what the Holy Spirit does when that happens. There is so much more than what we have experienced. There is so much more available. As we look at next steps inward, just to reflect, is there anything blocking? Is there anything in the way? For the rich young man, it was his money. It might not be money for you, but is there anything in the way? Again, if Jesus were to have this exact same conversation with you and say, hey, to follow after me more fully, you're going to need to deal with this, what would that thing be? And are you willing to sacrifice that thing on the altar? Are you willing to give that up and say, you know what? I, I love that thing, but it's more worth it to follow him and to know him and to draw close to him. In terms of outward next steps, I was just stuck on that line. Here's a man who's he's seeking, he's a bit confused, he's lost, he's not right with the Lord yet. Uh, and that Jesus looked at him and loved him. Loved him right where he was. So who around you, when you look around in your life, who just needs that look of love this week? Who just needs to be loved? And, and there may be a time, maybe they do need a lecture at some point, but right now is not the time for the lecture. Where do you just need to meet them in love and in compassion and in empathy? And if more needs to come down the road, that's fine. But where, like Christ, can we look at someone with love this week?